Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us Alexander Riley. He is a professor of sociology at Bucknell University. He's been with us before uh, on the podcast. He's also written a few articles for First Things. One was A Religion of Activism. That was in April 2019. And Woke Totemism. That was from August 2019. He's edited a set of interview discussions that took place at, at Bucknell over the last couple of years with the title Reflecting on the 1960s at 50. So 50th anniversary, a bunch of discussions of the 1960s. Welcome, Alexander. Thanks, Mark. Thanks very much for having me. All right, well, why don't you just give us the, the general format of the book? Well, what, is the, what is the overall content? As you just noted there, the book stems from a, a year-long symposium that uh, that we held at Bucknell in 2018, 2019. Six different talks, folks that I had invited uh, to come out and talk about the, we wanted to frame it in, in a sense, I mean, it's, it's right there in the title, the reflecting on the 60s at 50. It was exactly 50 years after the the really pivotal year in the 60s of 1968. Mm-hmm. And so that seemed like a good rhetorical device to hang the whole thing on. Let's 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 bring some high flying folks out who've talked a good deal about the not only about the things that happened in the '60s, the events and the movements and so forth, but even more importantly, from the standpoint of the symposium, the folks who had written and talked about the consequences of the '60s, what had happened as a result in the country, what had happened as a result of the of the '60s. So. So six different uh, scholars from a wide range of disciplines. There was a sociologist, a literary scholar, a political scientist, an historian, an economist, and uh, somebody who teaches in a department in a law department to talk about a range of uh, of different '60s-based issues, race questions of of race relations and gender and marriage, uh, the culture, student activism, etc. And we held these over a year, over the period of an academic year here at Bucknell. Big question. Why won't the 60s fade? They're still very much alive, aren't they? They sure are. That, that was a, a number of the speakers, in fact, made that point, that, that it was the 60s seemed to be this thing that we, we couldn't get over. Every, every politician and every person who speaks about recent history in a public setting inevitably seems to find him or herself right back at the at the questions of the 1960s but my sense of this is that the the 60s are both more and less important than we typically think they are they're they're less important in the sense and some of the folks uh, at the symposium brought this point up in various ways too they're, the 60s are less important than we sometimes think just in the sense that what was going on in the 60s was not new 
it was in fact part of a whole series of of broad social, cultural, political changes in the country that had been happening at least since the early 20th century. And, and, and some people would say you could extend that argument even back still further. Ways in which relationships between the generations w- w- were changing, ways in which gender relations and gender roles had been changing, questions of race relations had been undergoing some transformation, certainly since well before the 60s. So the 60s are less important in that sense, just as a discrete decade, if you will. But they're also more important, I think, than a lot of people recognize. Certainly, my students often don't recognize precisely the the radicalism of some of the the political and cultural upshot of the 60s, exactly how much, for example, our view of what it means to be an American citizen, indeed, what, what even the basic political principles of the country are. I think arguably that underwent a really profound transformation in the 60s. Christopher Caldwell talks a little bit about this in the, the recent book that he wrote, which is largely about the legacy of the 60s. It just talks about the, the, the fact that we, I think arguably, we, we transformed the country in the 60s from a, a polity based on principles of individual right and individual liberty to a polity that's much more based now on notions of group right and and group identity as a as a driving force and especially group identity as it's defined by your your position in some hierarchy of suffering and victimization over the the history of the country that's become a much more widespread lens for understanding a lot of stuff that goes on in the country since the 60s your first contributor discussant was Todd Gitlin uh, who was big big some three big questions who was or is Todd Gitlin what does he single out about the 60s that was important and I'll just quote one statement that he made in the discussion he says it was quote a civil war in a sense so go ahead Todd was one of those people who I had been reading for forever I mean I'm we, we share a disciplinary formation he was uh, he's trained as a sociologist and so am I so I and I grew up, if you will, in in uh, as a college student and as a graduate student, as a, a person of the political left, and so in that sense, that uh, he and I shared not only uh, a set of intellectual questions and disciplinary questions, but we shared some political concerns that that had changed by the time the symposium happened, and so we uh, our political positions were and are quite different. But I still. Still to this day, in fact, not only in 2018, 2019, but, but still today, I, I greatly respect Todd Gitlin as an intellect and as a writer. And so I thought, as this is someone who had commented a huge amount in his writing over the years on the 60s, he, has, he had both, has both a scholarly interest in the topic and has written scholarly tomes about the 1960s, but he also was himself a participant in the politics and the social movements of the 60s. He was a, uh, he's a former president of the Students for a Democratic Society. He was uh, greatly involved in uh, activism against the Vietnam War and other campus activism in the 60s. So he seemed to me as a, as a sociologist with a, with a certain kind of trajectory, intellectual trajectory, of political trajectory of my own, he seemed like an easy person to bring in as somebody to kick things off. When he referred to the 60s as a civil war, what were the sides as he understood them? That's a, that gets interesting. In, 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 in fact, it got interesting in, in Todd's recounting, both at the, at the symposium and in some other things that he's written, because he's one of the things that he and I still very much agree on 
with respect to the developments in the 60s is that the there was a there was a difference there was in fact a transformation in the face of 60s radicalism during the course of the 60s and the and the first wave of the student activists of the young youth activists which Todd Gitlin himself was a part of were very different in a lot of ways than the the activists who came after them in the later 60s and in the early 70s and i think that that difference is still reflected in my read at least in the the way that intellectual activism looks today in, for example, American universities, They're, the the contemporary brand of uh, of intellectual radicals that we see today look much more like the late '60s, early '70s folks than they do like Todd Gitlin. And Todd Gitlin has written about this how 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 much he recognizes the differences that he has with some of those folks. Very quickly, the the the, the root of the difference between those early '60s radicals and the late '60s radicals is it's both affectual and in, in you can see it in self-presentation but it's also in terms of intellectual depth that you can see it the the the, the early 60s radicals the todd gitlins these were guys who had read everything they were they were very well versed in the american intellectual tradition um and they were and they were reverent of a good deal of it even even if they were also critical of some of it they tended to be very high-flying intellectual figures they did well in school and uh they attended elite east coast universities often had goals of uh getting into higher education and you know working as scholars and and uh, uh intellectuals themselves writers yeah and they just were they they, they self-presented in a way that was very that had a lot of similarities it, it, even with the culture that they were in some ways criticizing they were they tended to be kind of clean shaven and clean cut and they weren't really into the wild and woolly sexual radicalism of the later 60s and 70s and the, you know, let's all take drugs and experiment with all the things that are out there to experiment with. They were much more straight-laced and in a lot of ways much more like the folks that they were criticizing. The later 60s, early 70s folks were very different and were often, I think Todd himself says this, and I, I agree with him fully on this, they were much less intellectually serious very often. Instead of reading and criticizing those earlier American intellectual sources that they, 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 that they wanted to criticize, uh, it became much easier just to say, well, I'm, we're just not going to read them at all. We don't need to take those people serious. They're all, seriously, they're all racists and fascists and Nazis, and, and so it's easier just to dismiss them in that way. The Todd Gitlins never did that. They, they, they took on those folks intellectually and mounted arguments against them and really took seriously the culture of, of discourse and debate in a way that I think has there's a lot of evidence that that has that suffered in intellectual radicalism since the 60s there are many fewer people in universities today i think who have the same kind of reverence for that discourse that uh, that todd gitlin had and still has i remember reading in gitlin's history of the 60s the uh, years of hope days of rage book i think he's talking about the port huron which is a great statement. book just a great book yeah yeah port huron was 62 is that right uh, yeah, early 60s. Yep, yep. And that Gitlin said, you know, we saw ourselves very much in an American iconoclastic tradition. And I think he compared them to Thoreau and, and Emerson and Whitman, that kind of sort of critical sort of counterculture in the way those those fellows were, but that the, the, they were very much honoring a certain lineage in the American past. You don't see that in the Weatherman, you know, in Bill Ayers, do you? Oh no, it's yeah, that's the change exactly. Uh, Todd was 
very clear. And, and, and that whole wave of Erlinger, this is a sociological statement in addition to a, a statement about a single individual, Todd Gitlin. Is there were a whole bunch of other people like Todd in that early wave of student critics and radicals who, as you just said, they saw themselves as part of an American tradition of criticism and speaking back to the elders and, and, and trying to address some of the, the problems that they, they saw in some of that earlier work. But at the same time, recognizing that you had to preserve it. it you, couldn't, you weren't just going to throw Emerson away. You weren't just going to throw Thoreau in the garbage and say, this is totally useless and we have to, to, to start all over. Weatherman is about, in the later 60s radicals, that's about burning that whole thing down. And then, and it's not even clear for some of them when you talk to them, you know, read some of the stuff that Bill Ayers had to say in that period and some of the other figures in that, that radical, that more radical wing of the 60s um, activism. It's not even clear that for many of them that, that the goal was to build anything back afterwards. It's just, you know, anarchy is its own, is its own end, is its own goal. That's what we're going for. Anarchism itself is, uh, is the project. And so we don't want to build more structures. I, I gave a talk at Wesleyan University two years ago, I guess it is now. And I, I referred to a tradition of American roguishness and critical counterculture. I referred to Emerson, Whitman, and Thoreau. And the very first question to come from the kids was, why did you start off by citing three white males? And I wanted to say... Who ever taught you to think in this way? Except, you know, faculty were in the room too. And I, I didn't want to insult my hosts, but my goodness. <laughs> yeah, you, you, know, you know the answer to the question. You know who taught them that, right? It is, it's, those, it's those people who were the late 60s, early 70s radicals, many of whom went on to become college faculty and to become uh, leading players in in uh, in the American right. cultural institution. A, a lot of people don't, you know, they know Angela Davis. Uh, Angela Davis didn't just go into the academy. She didn't just become a professor. She was a university professor in the un the University of California system. She was located at UC Santa Cruz, but actually she was a university professor, which was the highest ranking position in the entire UC because it meant you are a professor of the whole system, not just, not just your local campus, but the whole system. There were only three or four people. Uh, actually, Hayden White was one. Murray Krieger was, was another. Those are names our audience probably doesn't know now. But not just professors, but distinguished, prestigious figures uh, that these, these, I mean, it was a very good career for a lot of these uh, radicals uh, uh, at the time. Let's jump to uh, jump over to Mark Moyer. He was a guest to discuss the Vietnam War. What did Mark Moyer single out in Vietnam War in the 60s? Mark Moyer has a, has a really fascinating and, in my read, a really a telling story, an intellectual uh, a biography. He's, he's trained as an, histor as, an, as an historian, has a PhD in history, and has a pedigree that's really impressive, has written a, a bunch of books, including the main book on the Vietnam War, which was published with, I, I think, Cambridge University Press. That was the thing that first attracted me uh, to his thinking. And he classifies himself as a, as a contrarian on the, on the Vietnam War, at least with respect to academic historians, because he takes a position that's very much in opposition to what is, you know, it's almost a misnomer to call it the, the mainstream position in, in academic history departments these days on the war. It's the, it's the only position 
that you find on the Vietnam War in academic history positions, which is that, you know, this is the story that, that every kid who takes a course on the 60s or, or more specifically on the war in Vietnam learns that the war was misguided from the very beginning, that the American intentions were, were malign and, and totally unconcerned with the, with the fate of the Vietnamese people. We were just trying to uh, narrowly pursue our own material and global political interests. There was no chance ever of winning the war because the, the Vietnamese people were so clearly on the side of the, of the communists and of the, 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 the North Vietnamese regime. And Mark took a, a, a very different stance based in very deep reading of historical sources and all the archival materials that he could get access to. I mean, that, that, that big book that I uh, first was introduced to his thought uh, through consulting was, is just a, an absolutely magisterial effort. And, and, and it had been, again, it was vetted by an academic press, was um, uh, read by academic readers and, and got through the press process and was published, uh, got reviewed by in a lot of academic sources and journals. And uh, some of the reviews were positive and some were, were critical, as is the case with a lot of academic books. But Mark found himself in the position, despite his pedigree and despite his, his you know, his training and his, his uh, a pretty spectacular publishing record, he found it impossible to get an academic position. And he, he's, he's written a little bit on this, and I talked a, a pretty good deal of, uh, about this with him when he was here. Uh, he's got a lot of information that indicates that a, a fair amount about, of that was just basically academic blacklisting. Uh, academic historians who, who talk about the 60s and about the Vietnam War didn't want anything to do with this position. They didn't even want to take it seriously. They didn't even want to present it as a, as a legitimate, if criticizable, position on the war. So as I was putting together the series, one of the things that I was interested in was trying to get some kind of balanced view on the 60s. I wanted really to avoid doing what is very typically done when academic institutions do things ab about the 60s, whether that's, that means teaching courses, offering courses, or doing symposia or whatever. And typically what happens is that you get a pretty, you get a skew that's indicative of some of the demographic things regarding college faculty that we were just talking about. You get one side. It's basically the 60s were, it's a complete rah-rah story. The 60s were absolutely what the country needed. America was on its last legs or was really headed in the wrong direction prior to the emergence of all these social movements in the 60s. And thankfully, we got all that stuff. And in fact, there's, there's, there's way more still to, that needs to be done. But if we hadn't had all that, then who knows what, what horrible fate would have, uh, would have come to the United States. I wanted to do something a little more complicated. What does he say about the role of the draft in the 60s? Well, the draft certainly mattered. I mean, the draft was a, the, the, the fact that you, uh, at least if you, were, if you were a young person of a, of, the, of a certain social class and a certain status position, this was a, this was a real issue that you had to take seriously and you had to be concerned about. And so he, he, he talks about the fact that this, this meant that it was, a, it was a, if you will, it was an imposed top-down variety of patriotic American policy, basically. And this is, which, which again, was not that, not that different with respect to the way that a lot of other polities uh, have, uh, have run their, their military service. We're going to require this of young people because we see it as an important element of citizenship and of membership in the, uh, in the polity. A lot, a lot of countries around the world, Western democracies included, 
still do mandatory military service of one variety or another um, as a part of the, at least for, for young men in, in a lot of these countries, of uh, a part of the of coming of age and of, and of uh, attaining full citizenship, if you will. And so the draft was part of that in uh, the United States. One of the things that Mark has talked about at the, in, his, uh, in his appearance at the symposium that touched on the draft was that the, in the scholarship on the Vietnam War, in the mainstream scholarship, that is, the, if you will, the, the, the oppressive side of the draft is overemphasized and the resistance to the draft is overemphasized, that you often get a huge emphasis in uh, the mainstream scholarship on the war in the 60s that says, well, essentially every young person in the 60s was against the war. There, were real, there really was nobody among the young generations who who believed that what we were doing was just or that it was noble and honorable uh, to go and to fight for your country and to defend West, the Western democracies against communism, which was the narrative in the 60s. Nobody believed that. Everyone was cynical and, and everyone who could escaped the draft or tried to escape the draft. And Mark just points out that, cl- that clearly isn't true. He, one of the things that he talked about in the symposium was the, the series on the Vietnam War, the, the, the documentary series which emerged right about the same time as the symposium was emerging by I'm, I'm blanking on the, the filmmaker's Burns. name. I should know his Ken name. Burns. Ken Burns. There you go. Uh, the Ken Burns series, which I had, I had uh, speed watched the entire series. In fact, right around the same time that the symposium was happening. So it was really interesting for me to hear Mark's remarks on it. He said, one of the things he said is that the, the series really fell down on the question of let's try to be representative when we interview Vietnam veterans. Let's try and talk to a wide swath because we know anybody who's looked at this question academically and, and with the objective scholarly lenses knows that there's a wide swath of different perspectives. Vietnam veterans have a lot of different views of the war. Some of them became very anti-war and even became activists, and many did not. Many went to and many, in fact, died in the war as American patriots, believing fully that the the mission was just. And many uh, survived and came back and still have that position. And Mark indicated that the in his in his remarks at the symposium that the the Burns series really didn't make any effort to try to be representative. Every single Vietnam veteran who speaks in the in the documentary is a critic of the war and it's heavily uh, based it if you will with activists folks who came back from the war and became political activists and that's that's a telling statement about where we are on that that this this series which is likely the single document that a lot of americans will have any familiarity with at least, at least younger americans who they're not going to read Mark Moyer's book, and they're not going to read another, you know, any other scholarly works on this, but they're likely to have seen at least part of that series, and that that's going to that's going to have an effect on what their view of the war is and what the legitimate range of opinions on the war is. Charles Kessler makes a, an interesting point that I thought was quite far-reaching. He talks about, and, and this is one of the ways that distinguishes the the new left from the old left, uh, whereas the old left had attacked Wall Street and the bosses and the bigwigs in America. The old left didn't go after the working class. The old left didn't really go after the middle class uh, uh, that much. But the new left had a conception of all of America being guilty, that all the, the, all the populations were, were somehow implicated or compromised in various villainies that the new left brought out. You agree? Yeah, that's certainly what Charles 
noted at his talk and, and, and uh, that he's written about as well. I think, and I, yes, I do agree that the, that's, that's one of the shifts that takes place in the, the dominant face, if you will, of the, of the left discourse in this country in the sixties. You, you, you have that early, I mean, it's, 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 this is something you can find in, in at least um, uh, many of the mainstream histories of the sixties, even though it tends to be skewed in a particular way, that war between the old left and the new left. The folks who were the, in, in many cases, the old lefties who were doctrinaire Marxists, or at least who were who were very well read in Marxian literature, and they had a they had a as you just noted they had a class based analysis very often of their of politics, uh, and, and so you the working class was your that was your political base for those folks. You weren't going to denigrate them as white supremacists. And, and, you know, colonialists and misogynists and transphobes and all the other things that you, that you do denigrate those folks today as, you know, the deplorables are all those things. That's the, that's the shift, the old left to new left from, from, a, from an economics-based political position, which recognizes that the, the working class is your base. That's the group that's going to carry, you know, in classical Marxian language, that's the group that's going to make the revolution. And even if you don't believe in a revolutionary view of it, if it's a reformist view that, you know, through the unions and so forth, you're going to get positive change. It's the working class that's going to do that. Uh, you, you get the total transformation of that in the 60s, really, to this view that the, the working class are the, in many ways, they're the most benighted, they're the most maligned element in American society. Those are the folks who, if you look at the, look at the voting data, they're the folks who most skewed toward uh, uh, being Trump voters in 2016. Yeah, it absolutely awful. And you have to, you can't despise those people enough. Sorry, there's no hope. They can't, they, they can't be, they can't be redeemed. They can't be educated. That's right. That's right. Uh, and what, what does Charles say about the performance of the press? What, 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 we, we know how bad the media are today in terms of their partisanship. Did he find that in the sixties we had a lot of the same thing. Yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of, of or was one of my favorite parts of Charles' uh, presentation is that he talked a good deal. Well, I mean, we, we set him up and primed him with some questions about the media precisely because we wanted to get him to talk about that. And he, he had some wonderful things to say that certainly it was the case that, and has been the case throughout American history, that uh, the, the press has, has often been in a prickly relationship with political power and, and with presidents and with folks at the pinnacle of political power. And it's very common to find presidents saying uh, negative things about the press. In fact, one of the, one of the quotes that I gave him to run with in his talk was from Lyndon Johnson and uh, during the sixties. And he, Johnson is talking to uh, an editor at some, some big East coast newspaper in the wake of uh, some of the early days of the Tet Offensive. And, and the way I presented the question to Charles was just to say, you know, if, if you didn't see Lyndon Johnson's name at the start of this quote, uh, and you were reading this in 2018, which is when the ta his talk was taking place, you might think that the speaker was, instead of Lyndon Johnson, that the speaker was Donald Trump, because he's so angry and so convinced that the press is out to get him. And the, you know, and the language is so clearly, you know, basically Johnson's saying, how in the world am I supposed to win a war? when the press is just shooting me in the back, totally illegitimately here at home, you know, we just, we have this thing happen, which is the Tet Offensive, and the, the radicals have risen up all over the country. North Vietnamese troops have, uh, have infiltrated themselves and have made this, this massive movement 
throughout the South. There was a moment at which it, it looked like it might be, it might show some promise for the North, but basically what happened is that the South Vietnamese troops and the Americans who were there assisting them completely defeated it. This is the, the, the story of the Tet Offensive in, in objective terms is that it was a total crushing defeat for the North Vietnamese. And even more so that we, we basically, uh, be, between us and the South Vietnamese uh, regular troops, we totally decimated the Viet Cong troops in the, the, the rebel troops in South Vietnam that were fighting on the side of the communists. We basically killed just about all of them in the, in the Tet Offensive. And so it was a total military victory. And Johnson's talking to this editor at this paper going, you know, we won a total victory and you guys are, are basically presenting this as though it's a complete defeat for the United States and that I, I, Lyndon Johnson, screwed up totally. So, so Charles talked about that. He said, this is not new, the idea of, of politicians fighting with the media. What is new in the Trump administration, and, in, and even more recently, or, or, or less recently than that, in the way that conservative presidents have had to deal with the media, what is new in Kessler's view is the fact that it's no longer simply partisan press on various sides going after the president that they disagree with politically but it's a much more univocal media that's on one side politically going after very selectively going after politicians on one side of the aisle and leaving politicians that they agree with more or less alone and not criticizing them. That's the real problem that, that, that Kessler points out in his talk. The book is Reflecting on the 1960s at 50. There's much more in the book uh, to, to discuss, but uh, well, I want to thank, uh, thank Alexander Riley. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Can I say one more quick thing? This is one thing that I wanted to note, uh, Mark, in our notes on this. It's just that I think the one central thing that the book points out that's, that's still true in the 60s, although it has to be skewed in a certain way, is that there's, there's great value in the notion of speaking truth to power. Right. That's the that that was one of the central that was a that was a mantra in the 60s, speaking truth to power. This is something that, in fact, we were uh, I was trying to do with the symposium was to speak truth to power. Obviously, you know, the Charles Kessler talk we were just talking about indicates the, the shift in valence, if you will. Speaking truth to power now is a very different kind of thing in the American Academy than it was in 1968. And, and now, in fact, it's very often the people who the 60s radicals were opposed to and we're, we're attacking in the 60s, they're the ones who are forced to speak truth to power because the powers are, have, have, have shifted, and uh, the whole power structure is quite different now. And so it's a, it's a little bit of effort. In that sense, the book is it's sympathetic to and consonant with the spirit of the 60s, even though the valence has shifted pretty radically. Thank you, Alexander. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks very much for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.